You are Locked On Bills, your daily Buffalo Bills podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's up, Bills Mafia? It's Joe Marino from the Draft Network, and I'm your host of Locked On Bills. Happy Friday to you. As promised, I have a guest on the podcast today because I want to get another opinion on here to talk about this Buffalo Bills draft class. And you guys have heard me talk about it for the last two weeks. And it's time for Chris Trapasso, the CBS NFL draft analyst, to join the show today to give his insight on this draft class. And Chris, like I said uh, before to the listeners, we spent a lot of time talking about all the possibilities that could happen in the draft. And we don't talk enough time. We don't spend enough time talking about what happened in the draft. So we are going to uh, continue the discussion today on the podcast. I appreciate you joining me. No, thanks for having me again. And I agree. We spend months and months doing mock drafts and talking about trades and speculation for where players could go. It, it's fun to try to spend as much time as possible on the evaluations, the fits for these prospects, where they pick too early, where they pick too late. How can they factor in this year and down the road? Uh, and this is a pretty fascinating Bills draft class, especially because it's been like 30 years that we have a Bills offseason building toward, hey, how do we get just a little bit better to maybe win the Super Bowl this season? It's been building toward that uh, over the past couple of seasons, but this was a fascinating draft in and of itself based on where they were picking in each round. So I want to build off of what you just said there, specifically the the comment about did they do enough to capitalize on this opportunity? We're going to get there, Chris. We're going to get there, Chris, but let's start with, this first round pick, Gregory Rousseau, the defensive end from Miami. What were your thoughts about Rousseau as a prospect? And now that he's a Buffalo Bill, what are your thoughts on that fit? As a prospect, I was not high on him. He was my biggest buyer beware prospect in this entire draft class. Uh, I had him, I think, at 134 overall. He was like an early watch for me. Like I, I watched all the defensive ends, I think, relatively early. I, like I usually do quarterbacks and like receivers. Uh, pretty early on, but I, I remember watching all the defensive ends in a row and I was excited to watch him. 15 and a half sacks as a redshirt freshman, six, seven, all this top 10 buzz, which in early in the pre-draft process, there was a lot of early uh, or like early first round buzz for him. I just wasn't impressed. I, I didn't think uh, the pass rush moves were there. I thought he rushed high and not just because he was six foot seven, but just he didn't really get low and generate power because his center of gravity was so high uh, inside against guards and centers. I thought he used his length pretty well. And like Brandon Bean has said after the draft in terms of like cleaning up and getting those sacks that are covered, shack, uh, covered sacks or when someone else is initially creating the pressure to actually bring the quarterback to the turf. I thought he was good in that respect. He just seemed extremely raw for me. And then at the Miami pro day, I thought, Hey, maybe if he tests through the roof, it will be worth a first round pick or can move him up my board. And he didn't really have that good of a workout. I know Brandon Bean has talked about the 10 yard split being like, I think the best in the class among all edge rushers. I didn't necessarily see that type of explosion and then sustain speed to the quarterback. Like maybe his first step was okay, but then from the line of scrimmage to the quarterback, I thought he kind of stalled out a little. So I, I think, I guess because of the length and because he's relatively young and only has one year of experience at the college level, there is upside, but 
Brandon Bean's kind of alluded to it. I thought it was just more of like a 2022 or 2023 pick for, again, a team that uh, I think should have been trying to maximize the instant impact with Josh Allen still on this rookie deal. So I definitely can relate with, with a lot of the thoughts that you had there. You know, the thing about Rousseau and the reason why many people thought he was potentially going to be a high first round pick. And, you know, you could see the appeal is because of what he did do in 2019. And you couple that with, you know, the fact that he's a converted safety wide receiver type player new to the position, had the production. And you thought to yourself, well, look, if he has another year and he takes a step in 2020, yeah, I, I get it, right? That's where you develop, and that's why you have that buzz as a high first-round pick. Then he didn't play in 2020, and and I don't want to sit here and say that he should have, you know, based on the personal circumstances that that go into it. But the fact is, he didn't play, and he lost a lot of sizzle. Now he still came in as the 45th player on my board, nowhere near as low as you had him. So you must look at this pick right now, knowing your evaluation of the player, and as somebody who scouts the entire class you've earned the right to have an opinion on this, right? Like I know that we frown upon draft grades and everyone has their their thoughts about that. But if you do the work, right? If you do the work on these players, you have earned the right to have an opinion. And so, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, I just wanted to jump in there because it's so good that you're saying that, Joe. And it seems like it's starting to become, I, like I know you've been on that train for a while. I, I certainly have too. But after this draft, like more uh, draft analysts and I think fans have come full circle on like, hey, if you evaluate the entire class, you can say, hey, this is a, a, a C minus or a D plus pick for me. I mean, you don't just go strictly on your board and where someone was picked up to factor in like we're talking about scheme fit and fit on the roster. But definitely when you scout an entire draft, as I think you can do immediate yeah. draft grade treats selection right with the caveat being this is relative to my perception of the players and what they mm -hmm. the teams are able to do with the draft capital they had at their disposal and, and also recognizing that you're not you know that arrogant to think that you know everything and that you've perfectly evaluated every player and, and that you're correct but if you grade draft picks on the lens of this is my evaluation of the player then you've earned that right so obviously not very high on the Rousseau pick. Let's uh, shift gears to that second round pick, Carlos Bash on the defensive end out of Wake Forest. Uh, were you surprised to see Brandon Bean go edge with back-to-back -back picks? And do you think this is kind of kind of a wasted opportunity to improve a different area on the team? I was a little surprised, but because of the fact that I didn't really like the Rousseau pick, uh, I thought it made sense to pick someone like Carlos Basham, who I thought has a lot more instant impact capability that is more pro ready in terms of pass rushing moves, bend, speed to power conversion, just one-on-one -on -one victories against tackles at the college level. Obviously a totally different player than Gregory Russo, although they're kind of getting grouped together because they can both play inside and outside. I thought, you know, with three years of high-level production compared to just one from Rousseau. He reminded me, actually, a lot of A.J. Epinesa uh, last year. I had the exact same grade on those two prospects, Carlos Basham and A.J. Epinesa, in back-to-back -back drafts. Like, I, I thought uh, after picking someone that was more long view in mind in Gregory Rousseau, if you did want to upgrade the edge spot with Jerry Hughes being older, Mario Addison being in his 30s, uh, then – I. I actually was fine with it. I know a lot of people were like, hey, they should have gone corner there. They they could have gone, gone uh, maybe interior offensive line. 
I think when I was on earlier, I think in the mock draft, I went like Kendrick Green in round two Mm -hmm. instead. Uh, But because they went with the project in round one at at a premium position, I was okay with them going, hey, maybe his his ceiling is not Gregory Rousseau's ceiling of 15, 17 sacks in a season, but it's high floor and he's going to help us this season. Like there's a, a stronger likelihood that he is like one of the the true rotational defensive ends on a regular basis in 2021 as compared to Gregory Rousseau. So I'm guessing you had Basham higher on your board than you did Rousseau. Yeah, I had a late first round grade on, on Carlos okay. Basham actually. So I, I, I thought, I didn't think the Bills were going to go edge again, but then when they picked him, I was like, oh, well, they, they go with like a, a fourth round prospect in, in round one on my board. And then in round two at 61 overall, get someone that I thought the Bills could have picked in round one, and I would have been fine with that. So how do you see this defensive end situation playing out in terms of you know the final roster? In my mind, I've been saying six defensive ends, four defensive tackles. Do you see the Bills going that direction, or do you have a different idea for what could happen with all these talented defensive ends? No, those numbers make sense to me. Uh, although I, I would like to see the Bills kind of stay to their – philosophy that they put out there to the media that they're going to move some of these defensive ends around. I mean, AJ Epinesa only played seven snaps inside last year. And I know he was a little different because they wanted him to, to be an edge rusher. They had him slim down into the well into the two sixties when he was two seventy five at the 2020 combine. Uh, hopefully with Carlos Basham, they let him play inside. And if they do have Gregory Russo on the field for even a, a limited amount of snaps as a rookie. And I don't think he's going to get like a full red shirt and never play. Let him play inside. And they do have uh, a lot of defensive ends and not many interior defensive linemen. So I think six and four make a, a lot of sense. The one player that, and I'm sure you've brought him up on a lot of your episodes, Effie Obata, that yeah. signing, I, I think it's easy to think of Jerry Hughes and Mario Addison and AJ Epinesa and even Daryl Johnson. And then you, you draft, two edge rushers in the first two rounds. It's easy to forget about this guy who had 29 pressures on fewer than 300 pass rushing snaps last year. There's a Carolina connection, third most pressures on that Panthers team last year behind Brian Burns and Derek Brown, two first round picks. Uh, I think Effie is going to be very much a part of that rotation. So I think because of him and what they already have and what they invested in this draft, I think six, six defensive ends that a few of which can play inside make a lot more sense than slimming out that position and bringing in more defensive tackles when that's really not a strength of the roster right now. Yeah, I'm not willing to say right now that the Bills are going to cut Obata. I think he's part of the plan. And I think where it gets difficult is, are you really going to have six active defensive ends on game day? You know, they could they could go with three active defensive tackles. I could see them going with three there and then dressing all six of them. Uh, it, but it's it's a, it's a good problem to have, I guess. What, what do you have? Yeah, no, the one thing I was going to say on that is, is that we heard a lot about A.J. Epinesa's ability to play inside. And like I said, he, he didn't really play inside last year. I, I wrote after the draft that's drafting Gregory Russo and then Carlos Basham and how outward Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean have been about, Hey, these guys can play inside outside. And like you're insinuating, looking at the roster makeup, uh, it it wouldn't be crazy for them to say, Hey, six defensive ends and three interior defensive linemen active. And we truly are going to play Carlos Basham inside. We need to, we just, we, we need more bodies in there. So this could be like the signaling of somewhat of a philosophical shift 
for Sean McDermott and Leslie Frazier, like, hey, we want more speed on the interior. We don't care if, if, if we don't have a bunch of 310-plus pound defensive tackles. So I think just the roster makeup kind of indicates that they will go in that direction in terms of just numbers and positional designations. But because of the versatility, I think they really truly want that now in those defensive ends, the ability to play inside. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Baseball season is in full swing, and you can track all the action at Bet Online. Get all the latest news, odds, info for all your sporting needs, including the MLB, NBA, NHL, and the UFC. Before the next pitch, head over to Bet Online on your laptop or mobile device and check out all the great sporting news, sign up bonuses, and contest information. Don't sit on the sidelines anymore. This is your chance to get in on the game. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit when you use our promo code locked on. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. So, Chris, after the uh, the Bills drafted defensive ends with their first two picks, the next two picks were both offensive tackles in Spencer Brown from Northern Iowa and Tommy Doyle from Miami of Ohio. Did you have any thoughts about them as prospects that you want to share? And then your, your thoughts on the Bills going with these two offensive tackles back-to-back? Specifically with Spencer Brown, and actually both of them are, are six foot eight, so they're both big. But with Spencer Brown on film, what one of the things that stood out to me, besides how athletic he was, that was very apparent. I liked how well he got low to the ground like there was clear like knee bend where he understood like if I'm not getting as low as I possibly can I'm going to be driven back to the quarterback on every snap so I, I like that that usually that's the case six 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 seven six eight even six nine offensive tackles usually just play very high and they're never going to be great in the leverage situations uh, I thought that was one area that was pretty unique with Spencer Brown I wouldn't have picked him in the third round, but I will say he's a very uh, kind of mysterious prospect because he didn't play college football in 2020, went to the senior bowl, held his own, and he worked out with Joe Staley uh, for all of 2020 working on his footwork. I thought he had uh, to kind of use a scouting term, opened the gate a little bit too early. Like he didn't create a, a big enough arc to the quarterback for the defensive ends to have to run around. Maybe he works with Joe Staley on that. Uh, but the athleticism for both of these prospects, I think, uh, is, again, more of a down-the-line uh, type of scenario where they're like, hey, not only are we trying to win a Super Bowl this year with Josh Allen, but we have Josh Allen, and he's 25 years old. We want to be good for a very long time, and protecting our quarterback, prioritizing the offensive line is very important. So I, I wouldn't have picked – either of these prospects as early as they went. Uh, but I think obviously with Spencer Brown, there is more upside because I, I, I thought he was much more technically sound with his footwork than Tommy Doyle was. I, I thought he was more of a waist bender and, and he had a kind of a long way to go. I don't even think I wouldn't have even really drafted Tommy Doyle, to be honest. I, I And like, I know that we're going to get into the draft philosophy, but I thought he was like a, a borderline seventh round priority free agent. They pick him in the fifth round, but again, maybe Brandon Bean said, Hey, we have our tackles in place, but we want to continue to have quality tackle play with Josh Allen under center. 
I had Tommy Doyle 219 on my board and Spencer Brown. I had, well, there's two Spencer Browns. Hold on. I got to change my search function. 127 on <laughs> the board. You know, look, the Bills are set at offensive tackle, right? Daryl Williams and Deion Dawkins, they're signed for the next three seasons. As I started to process these selections by Brandon Bean, I was reminded of all the really good offensive tackles that got, that got hurt last year, starting with the Kansas City Chiefs, who lost the Super Bowl due in large to not being able to protect what you know what they had in Patrick Mahomes with really good pass rushers for Tampa Bay. Both starting offensive tackles, Eric Fisher and uh, Mitchell Schwartz, were injured. But that extends to Taylor Luan with the Tennessee Titans, Ronnie Stanley with the Ravens, David Bakhtiari with the uh, with the Packers. Um, I mean, these guys across the NFL, like premier left tackles for contending teams were hurt. And, and I think, I think just as much as Brandon Bean watched the Super Bowl and said, yeah, we need to be able to affect Mahomes better. He also said, I got to make sure Josh Allen's protected, even though you have your offensive tackles locked up, you know, having that depth is something that you could tell he certainly subscribed to. So let's, uh, let's kind of shift our gears to, to more of the day three picks that weren't Tommy Doyle, which of, of these selections are, are you most excited about adding to the team? I'll give a two-part answer. In terms of just splash plays and, and the fun pick is definitely Marquez Stevenson. Uh, I thought of all of the small speedster, jet sweep, niche guys, I thought he was the best one. I thought he was better than Tutu Atwell. I had oh, him yeah. graded higher than Amir Smith-Marset. Uh, not crazy elusive. Like he's not going to make five defenders miss with a bunch of, uh, jump cuts down the field. But I just thought he was extremely fast, uh, through the second level down the field. I thought he was faster than four, four, eight. And I liked, uh, on film and at the senior bowl, his ability against press coverage. I thought he was pretty good for being this smaller guy. That's not going to win with physicality at beating press and getting open. So I don't think he's strictly like, hey, you need to run a go route or a post every single play. And just investing in that position, given the age of the Bills wide receiver group, uh, he excited me the most, like maybe for the future and hitting a couple big plays in 2021. DeMar Hamlin, though, I think is uh, actually was a um, kind of important selection, even in round six, losing Dean Marlowe, who... I thought was okay last year, but was playing a relatively important position at that third safety spot. And I know a lot of Bills fans have been clamoring for this big nickel type. He's not really this towering, hulking safety, but I really liked his film. I had him graded a lot higher, like just I think like 112 I had him graded overall. Uh, high floor player. He was very productive at, at Pittsburgh for three seasons. Uh, good run defender. Very rarely found out of position. I think occasionally would get too sucked up by play action, but the coverage skills were good. The athleticism was there and you just like to see that production. So in terms of someone kind of like Dean Marlowe, that maybe not is going to move the needle a ton, but it is an important deaf piece on that defense. It'd probably be DeMar Hamlin, but Marquez Stevenson, just because offense rules the NFL today and to add that speed element to this offense, I think was important. Yeah, I like both of those selections, and I've watched a ton of Houston with Marquez Stevenson on the field, and every time I watched Houston, there was no doubt in my mind the best athlete on the field was Stevenson. I mean, nobody yep. could touch this guy, and uh, I, I'm, a, I'm very excited to see what he can do with this football team. And yeah, DeMar Hamlin, I think, is a very cerebral, solid across-the-board type player that 
in terms of providing depth and being maybe Dean Marlowe 2.0, he's got that type of opportunity ahead of him. Uh, so when you look at this draft in totality, I, I, I feel like you're going to say Rousseau, but which selection overall confused you the most? It's Tommy Doyle, actually, uh, because with Rousseau, I, I didn't like the prospect. Like I had him graded much lower, like I said, but I, I understood the, Hey, our defensive ends are older. We want to plan for the next five to 10 years as a perennial AFC contender. This guy's got high upside. We trust our defensive line coaches. We trust Leslie Frazier, Sean McDermott to get the most out of these players. Tommy Doyle, I didn't understand. And I think you probably feel somewhat similarly because you had him graded in the seventh round. I, I understood the Spencer Brown pick because tackles a premium position similar to Rousseau. It was like, uh, hey, let's protect Josh Allen. Let's pick some with, with uh, the size, the length, and the athleticism. But then to go back to back and pick another like long-term tackle that is not nearly as technically sound as Spencer Brown when there was a lot of corners still on the board, uh, Jason Jason Pinnock, uh, who I thought from Pittsburgh was would have been a nice fit, uh, in like as kind of this is off coverage zone cornerback. Um, Keith Taylor, a senior bowl guy, won a few picks later from Washington, well over six foot, kind of infamously did not have an interception in his career at college, but I thought he had pretty solid film to be like a fifth round pick. Like that would have been good value there. Uh, and when he can keep his eyes on the quarterback, he was really good. Uh, at Washington. I think he's got pretty good uh, man ability too. just didn't make sense for me to go back to back projecty athletic type at the tackle position when you have already mentioned that, you know, with Deion Dawkins and Daryl Williams, uh, you know, entrenched at the left and right tackle spots for the next couple of seasons. So really wasn't Rousseau. I just didn't get the back to back offensive tackles, the projecty types at round three and then in round five. Did you get a chance to evaluate uh, Wild Goose, the cornerback from Wisconsin? Because I didn't. I, I have not watched him, and so I'm anxious to get any opinions you have on him. I did. I watched him, I think, like two weeks before the draft, and the one thing that stood out with him was the plant and, and drive acceleration. Like Everything else about his game was very raw. I didn't think he was good at the line of scrimmage. I didn't think playing the football, his awareness was kind of hit or miss, uh, but when he could watch the quarterback sink and then plant and drive on an in-breaking route or on a comeback, uh, you saw like, hey, this is someone that's definitely draftable. Like it wasn't elite in that area. He's not crazy big. He's not super fast. Uh, but I think that's probably why they took a flyer on him when they did, because the athletic traits, that explosion were certainly there on film. Need to tell you guys about Built Bar. It's the best tasting protein bar on the planet. They have so many amazing flavors and they're all covered in 100% chocolate. They're soft and easy to chew. It's like eating a candy bar, but it's good for you. Built Bars are great for anyone who is health conscious. Whether you want to lose weight, maintain weight, or just indulge in a delicious treat, you have to try Built Bars. They're low calorie, low sugar, high protein, high fiber, and perfect for anyone who is on the keto diet. I've got a deal for you. Go to BuiltBar.com and use promo code LOCKED15 and you'll get 15% off your next order. Again, that's promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off at BuiltBar.com. So Chris, as we kind of look at this draft class from more of a bird's eye view and dig into it, 
the roster ability of these rookies is always a fascinating conversation for me. And so the Bills traded back, right? So they would have eight selections in this draft. And Brandon Bean cited that you know, he was speaking to agents and stuff about potentially picking up guys as UDFAs. And they said, you know, look, we need to do what's best for our client. And I'm not sure they have a chance to make your team. So when you evaluate this draft class in terms of the roster ability of the selections, which picks do you think are going to have the hardest time making this roster? Well, this is a kind of a difficult answer for me, but uh, I think Marquise Stevenson, it, it, it will be hard for him to make the roster. I know he brings to this Bills team what really there aren't, there isn't another receiver that brings the speed that he has. But uh, for as much as I liked him, like to look at this Bills roster and see 12 wide receivers on it right now, and you certainly have your top four locked in uh, and then you still have Duke Williams Isaiah Hodgins who they liked last year before he got injured twice there's still Jay Kumaro Tanner Gentry Isaiah McKenzie how's he gonna fill in uh, so I, I think it will be difficult for him and then certainly just with the seventh round pick Jack Anderson uh, with bringing in Force Lamp there's Ike Butker still there Jamil Douglas those are veterans uh, that can play on the interior we know Ryan Bates can really play any position. They mostly like him at tackle, but I think Marquez Stevenson and Jack Anderson, just because of the depth in front of them. And obviously with Stevenson, I think he's, uh, you know, ultimately will maybe be on the practice squad and then get, get elevated down the road. And again, hit some of those uh, big plays down the field, but just looking at the makeup, because this is a Super Bowl contender, it's not going to be easy for these day three picks for all of them to make the roster. I agree with you on Jack Anderson. I think he's going to have a, a very difficult path, assuming everyone's healthy. For Marquez Stevenson, I think we've learned under Bean and McDermott that they're going to keep six receivers. That's that's their number. So I think we can all agree the top four, Diggs, Beasley, Davis, Sanders. I think wide receiver five is McKinsey. I, I think he's, he's locked into that spot. So that sixth spot where Stevenson would have to claim it, I think a big part of that is proving – he can be the primary kick returner, which he was outstanding at at Houston. And obviously, I think the speed dynamic and the, the ability to win at all levels of the field will help him. So he would have to beat out the likes of you know, Jake Kumaro, Isaiah Hodgins, Duke Williams, uh, Tanner Gentry. You, you, is, I, it feels like you're a little bit more hung up on him being able to do that than I. Yeah, I mean, I think he can do it. Um, and again, all those players that you just named, all those wideouts, none of them really have that downfield juice. So if the mm -hmm. Bills were like, hey, we're picking Marquez Stevenson, we kind of knew that we needed some more uh, uh, downfield uh, speed and that and adding that element and that threat of that big play to this offense that is so good from like zero to 19 yards or zero to 25 yards down the field. But we want that big play over the top more. I think that will ultimately help him. Um, and I'm not saying at this point, I think Stevenson will definitely not make the roster. Like mm -hmm. I think Anderson, probably Jack Anderson is the odds on favorite to not make the roster from this draft class. But Tanner Gentry has obviously a connection with Josh Allen. Jake Kumaro caught a touchdown pass last year. Duke Williams, they've loved him uh, since they signed him a few years ago. So I, I think just because of the sheer number of players that he would ultimately have to jump in his rookie season right away. Uh, that's why I think he probably would be, even when looking at, uh, you know, with Rashad Wild Goose, that there's not as much 
depth at corner and there's not as much depth at safety, especially that kind of bigger, uh, big nickel type. That's why I think that just Stevenson, because of the number of wide receivers, is going to have a little bit uh, tougher of a time making this roster in 2021. I want to touch on Wild Goose and his path to the roster. I think the Bills will keep five corners. Um, and, if, and if you agree with that, I think it's obviously Trey White, Levi Wallace, Dane Jackson, Taron Johnson. And then you have Saran Neal, who's been a, a primary gunner for the team, right, for, for a few years now. Uh, Cam Lewis, who it, it feels like every time they get a chance to mention something about Cam Lewis, they like him. And obviously he, at one point last year, took the, the slot job from Taron Johnson, who was benched in favor of Cam Lewis, and then he got hurt. And then you, then you have Wild Goose. I mean, so I, I have a hard time seeing his path to the roster. I kind of think he's going to be on that Dane Jackson plan where he's more of a practice squad, get a few chances to get called up, and then maybe be in, in line for a job in 2022. Do you see him having a clearer path, or, or, or am I kind of no, in I, line with your thinking on this? No, I mean, just to kind of rank them, I would put him right after Marquez Stevenson in terms of mm-hmm. unlikeliness to make the roster. But I, I just think, again, with the sheer number of corners, um, I even think Elijah Griffin, their undrafted free agent from USC, uh, I, I actually really liked his film. Yeah. I mean, I thought I thought he was worth a day three pick, like a, yep. like late day three. Uh, so I think that's going to be a little difficult for him as well. Um, but again, what's so interesting about this, it, it's like we're in this era, especially with expanded practice squads that like, okay, you don't make the team right away, but we're probably going to see you at some point. Like Dane Jackson yeah. was, like you said, like Dane Jackson didn't make the bills initially, but then he ultimately played and made some big plays for them. And they really liked him and Duke Williams, same thing. Uh, so even if some of these late day three picks, Wild Goose Stevenson and Anderson, even if they're not, uh, you know, on that week one roster in all likelihood, we will see them playing for the Bills at some point in 2021 or 2022. That's that's a really good point there. So kind of sticking with this cornerback discussion, I think a lot of the the conversation after the draft has been centered around the Bills, once again, not investing a premium selection in the cornerback position when it kind of seemed obvious that there was an opportunity to upgrade from Levi Wallace and you know entering the draft. You only had Dane Jackson and Lee, and uh Trey White is your only two corners rostered beyond 2021. Yeah. So, see, so what are your thoughts on this? I mean, the Bills, once again, not prioritizing corners. Do we need to just dismiss the idea that they're going to do it and they that McDermott's history has always been a really good corner, whether that's Chris Gamble or peak Josh Norman and Trey White and then a get-by guy? Is that just always the way it's going to be? Or, or do we think that this could change at some point? Yeah, I think that philosophy is set in stone with Sean McDermott. And to take it a step further, it's kind of what you're insinuating. I think Sean McDermott is a defensive line guy through and through, and he adheres to the <laughs> philosophy of if our pass rush is good, if we have one star corner, let's get that corner on the team's number one receiver. But with a heavy rotation, fresh pass rushers coming after the quarterback the entire game, the entire season – we can get by with a Levi Wallace type and not a crazy amount of depth at the cornerback spot. Some teams feel it that it's it's totally the other way, that, that we want a, a very deep, very, very good cornerback room and safety room, and uh, our pass rush will be benefited by better coverage. But I think from his time in Carolina, 
how heavy the rotation was there and what he's done in his first four years in Buffalo. Sean McDermott's like, Hey, let's have six or seven defensive ends on the field or, 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 or on our roster on our uh, game day roster. And the cornerback group uh, might not be as deep, but we're going to still get by. Chris, I had this, uh, this grand plan to do an entire podcast on Sean McDermott defensive line rotation tendency. So I did all this research, right? Right. To going back to his time in Carolina, cool. You know, you know what I came away with? Sean McDermott likes to rotate his defensive lineman. Like, I thought there would be something interesting, like when he had Charles Johnson or Kawan Short, like certain high-level players, if it really impacted or changed things, it didn't. He rotates them no matter what. So so I I, I can the idea because there was no real interesting takeaway, <laughs> despite the amount of research I put into it. But uh yeah, I think I think you hit the nail on the head here. This is defensive line heavy and and I mean, this year they're their top two picks. Last year their top pick at Epines, the year before that, Oliver. This this is a defensive line centered philosophy when it comes to building this defense. And like I said earlier about the the confusion, I guess, initially with the Tommy Doyle pick. Like I said, there were like cornerbacks that were <laughs> somewhat capable sure. of of, yeah. of moving into a, a cornerback three role as as rookies and had upside that were longer, that, that were good in zone, that weren't necessarily great man coverage guys. And the bill said, Hey, we're going in the trenches again. So I think in terms of Sean McDermott on defense and then Brandon Bean in general, I think they want to be really good up front and then worry about everything else, especially on the defensive side uh, and, and maybe not prioritize that. So I think when we're talking in 2022 about what the bills are going to do. They're probably not, we shouldn't talk much about corners super early because I think with Trey white there and yes, he was Sean McDermott's first pick. They identified him as a top tier target and were right a top tier corner. Um, But after that, they've been pretty good on defense during the Sean McDermott era by keeping that defensive line fresh, not only in every game, but throughout the course of the season by limiting even your star players reps so in December and January, and for the Bills, hopefully in February, uh, those players aren't worn down and, and they can still create pressure and help out the secondary to get their hands on the football more frequently. And that's the thing. It's like as much as you want to poke holes in this idea that they have with CB2, I mean, Sean McDermott's resume of, of coaching top-tier pass defenses in the NFL speaks for itself. Yep. I, I mean, it really does. I mean, he's been outstanding since he's been in Buffalo. He was outstanding in Carolina. I mean, this guy's had a top half of the NFL pass defense in every season since 2012 outside of 2016 and 2017. And if I'm not mistaken, those are the years where they just were trying to like get by with lackluster cornerbacks like Daryl Worley and and it was a Josh Norman or or whatever they were trying to get through (laughs) over in Carolina. So uh, James Bradbury as a rookie, I'm sure was, was, was factored into that as well. So his resume speaks for himself. One other thing that I wanted to bring up with this is that I think we're fixated on corner, corner, corner. But one other uh, staple of Sean McDermott's uh, coaching history, and now obviously in Buffalo, he's calling the shots more than he was as a defensive coordinator in Carolina. They definitely prioritize like great coverage ability in their linebackers. And I think the fact Having, and I know he's taken a lot of lumps, but having Tremaine Edmonds, who is capable in coverage with the athleticism at 6'5", and certainly re-signing Matt Milano, who to me is like an elite coverage linebacker, they understand that when they are facing offenses, 
the offenses are going to try to put those linebackers in conflict and say, Hey, we against 90% of the league, we feel good about putting our tight end or our running back out there, splitting him out wide and making the other team's linebacker play in coverage. The bills are really good in coverage with their linebackers. And certainly in Carolina with Thomas Davis and Luke Keekley and Shaq Thompson, they always had relatively strong to elite play in coverage from their linebackers. So it's not just in today's NFL about how good are your corners at covering. You need to be good at the second level with those linebackers and the bills certainly have that. I think that factored into, Hey, we need to make this a priority to re-sign Matt Milano because he's technically a, a, a slot corner. Uh, a lot of the time playing the linebacker position in today's NFL. Yeah, that overhang type role. Uh, Let's go back to that first thing you said when we started this conversation about this Bills team, where they're at in its life cycle, their opportunity to compete to win a Super Bowl this year. You look at this draft class, did they do enough to get over the hump or or do you buy into the idea that keeping that Super Bowl window open for as long as possible was the prudent move? Uh, It's just tough. I I just think with that Josh Allen rookie deal – uh, with him still being relatively cheap, I would have been a little bit more uh, or put a bigger emphasis on instant impact in 2021. And whether that was, you know, go a different direction in round one, or like I said, going with a cornerback in round five after you've picked the project, the athletic tackle in round three, I probably would have done uh, both of those things. But uh, to go specifically in terms of position, unless they truly do move around these defensive linemen. And I, I think, like we said earlier, it the makeup of the defensive end group compared to the defensive tackle room, that it shows that they might want to make that philosophical change. I actually think the interior pass rush uh, is kind of a, a big need for this team. There's, I guess they could sign Kwan short. There's a few veterans out there to, that could maybe help that out a little bit. But for as much as I just said, hey, like, cornerback I think could have been addressed and it it wouldn't have been a bad idea I actually think just getting consistent push from the inside on this defensive line is something that the Bills could have addressed in the draft there was I think you were the one that was saying it that that's kind of a sneaky need before the draft Um, even with getting star Latula laid back we know he's not a great pass rusher Harrison Phillips is more of a space eater on the inside you have Ed Oliver and you don't have a lot else Justin Zimmer's flashed a little bit and we know he's athletic so yeah I think they've done enough and what's funny about this is that we can focus in on the draft but just looking at the Bills roster as a whole it's a very very good roster like even if they only had three or four picks in this draft class I, I still think it is an elite NFL roster and should compete for a Super Bowl this season. All right, so you, to kind of close out our conversation today, you mentioned the roster. You, you think it's ready to compete for a Super Bowl. What is the biggest concern that you have regarding the makeup of the team entering training camp? Because I think this is pretty close to what this is going to look like. Is there anything that you can say, if the Bills don't meet expectations this year, they will fail because of this? That's a fantastic question. It's a little bit of what I just brought up the the interior pass rush. And I think conversely on the other side, uh, the interior of the offensive line that I wasn't as big on the bills needing to re-sign John Feliciano. I mean, Brandon Bean did wizard stuff with re-signing everyone. Uh, And I think John Feliciano is a solid guard. I don't think he's great 
And I think in those big games in the playoffs, like we saw in the AFC title game against Chris Jones, he can be a liability. They still have faith in Cody Ford. And yes, him being finally fully healthy and set into one position will probably help him. Uh, And, but I, I still think there are some question marks at the guard position. I mean, maybe someone like Forrest Lamp or Jamil Douglas has a Quentin Spain type of um, resurgence with the Bills and plays well. But I, I still think uh, even though your center and your two tackles are certainly set, I think for a team that the uh, everything else on the roster looks like a Super Bowl team, I, I think the guard position is still a, a little bit of a concern, especially when you're factoring in that Josh Allen moves the needle more than anything else. And, and you want to do everything in your power to have him pressured as uh, you know, infrequently as humanly possible. Well, I guess if you're going to have cons- a concern about a roster, it may as well be the interior offensive line where, yeah. I mean, the bills have pretty good bumpers in place with Morse and Dawkins and Williams. And then, you know, Cody Ford, a player entering year three. I, I don't think we know what he is yet in the NFL no. and obviously physically gifted and, John Feliciano in both seasons in Buffalo, he's been banged up. And so I think that's where you draw the optimism for the guards and that they can be, you know, passable or, or maybe a little bit above average for this season. But uh, Chris, I'm glad we did this. You know, like I said, and we, we ta- established at the beginning, we, we spent a lot of time talking about what could happen in the draft and not enough time about what did happen. And so thanks for coming on and, uh, giving us your your thoughts and opinions and expertise on this Bills draft class. Yeah, Joe, thanks for having me. And it, and for me, it's like, and I know for you and all your listeners, it's like adjusting your draft expectations to this Bills team to say, hey, they're just going to fill needs, uh, like down the road needs. This is not instant impact, the number one receiver, the number one linebacker, because this roster is so intact and the bills Brandon Bean did a great job keeping it intact for another run at a Super Bowl. All right, folks, that is going to do it for us today here on the podcast and this week here on the podcast next week, I'm going to spend a lot of time measuring the bills against the rest of the AFC and the AFC East. A lot of comparative uh, type podcasts where we rank position groups and talk about where the bills have advantages and where they may not have advantages. So don't miss any of that. Make sure you're subscribed, rate, review, and share the podcast. Have a great weekend, and I look forward to catching up with you again on Monday.